The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, a series of talks given by Sister Ayakema at the Buddhist Summer School, 1991. These talks were recorded on the second day during the first session. I hope you've done your homework on mindfulness of the body. And if you have, you will most likely be very interested to hear now about the other ways of being mindful because obviously we are not just the body and we're going to practice those now just to recapitulate we have already practiced mindfulness of body by watching the breath that's a bodily action we have practiced mindfulness of the body when we did walking meditation that's also bodily action. So these are two ways of several others where we can practice mindfulness of the body in meditation. And if you remember, I said to continue that in our daily living because we only have the one mind. And if we expect it to be mindful while we're meditating and mindless, when we're not meditating, it's not going to come together. We have to practice it as much as we can, as much as we're able to in daily living. It makes daily living also much easier, but it is essential for our meditation practice. Now the next, the second one of the foundations or the ways of practicing mindfulness is feeling, Vedana Nupasana. Now feeling encompasses two things, sensation, physical, emotion, which is mental. So we have feeling as a heading and we have two things that we can become aware of. This can be considered to be a very important aspect of our whole life, of our whole practice, because we live according to our feelings. We may have the idea, and many people do, in fact most people do, that we live according to the way we think. But we are not aware of the fact that our thinking is dependent upon how we feel. You can just remember maybe having been sick and not feeling well and what the mind did then. It goes into a spiral, downspin. It doesn't like anything that's happening. Or come nearer if you can't hear. <laughs> Is it that noise out there? What is it that's making that noise? Refrigerator. Yes. <laughs> if anybody can't hear, just move forward. So when, when our feelings are in a certain way, then our thinking is affected by that. So we don't think life, 
we feel it. Our thinking is dependent upon that what we actually experience through our feelings. And even those people who one says are cut off from their feelings that are doing it all through their head, of which there are some, of course, who try very hard, do it unsuccessfully. It's not possible to negate feelings. You can minimize your attention to them, and that's about it. You can also maximize your attention to it. That's also not helpful, because both will lead to an either an exaggerated or an underrated understanding of feeling. The only way we can actually deal with them successfully is by being objective. Just as I was explaining yesterday to label the disturbing thought, which is a totally objective recognition of them. We don't say, now that's terrible, that's bad, and I can't meditate and my meditation is awful and look at all these thoughts or whatever it is that we have any judgment about. We just give them a label, totally objectively. We do the same with feeling or sensation. Now, as we practice in the meditation, I'll explain that in a moment, we'll use the sensation, which is um, far easier to be objective about unless it becomes extremely pleasant or extremely unpleasant. Now, extremely unpleasant, you may have already experienced pain in the knee, back, neck, wherever, and feeling awful about it in the sitting position. That is our reaction to it. The feeling, the sensation is just unpleasant, that's all. So in the meditation practice, we're going to use sensation because it's so much easier to be objective. Emotion is much more difficult. Emotion, to be objective about emotion, that takes practice. But we are far more beset by emotions than by sensations. All right, the body sometimes doesn't feel well because there's been a pain here or there's a sickness there. But that's not the usual way. Usually, it's pretty neutral. So sensations, physical sensations, are not so much our difficulty as are our emotions. Our emotions are that which can actually lead us into disaster very easily. Now, with the emotions, with the attention to the emotion, this is something that we need to learn for everyday life. And our practice to be attentive to sensation will help us to be attentive to emotion because exactly the same action, the action of mindfulness, that's all it is. It's a mental state a mental state of alertness, awareness, of being totally there and not letting the emotion get the better of one, just recognizing it, labeling it. Labeling it and thereby, if it is beneficial, to keep it, if it's not beneficial, to substitute for it. Now this is 
the essence of mindfulness of feeling which without practice we can't do it because it works so quickly we have all experienced that no doubt having been overrun by either anger and didn't really want to be angry because it's not nice to be angry and we're such nice people really aren't we and yet we get angry it works too quickly for us we can't stop it why can't we stop it because we haven't learned mindfulness sufficiently yet that's all there is to it we've also been overrun by a very passionate wanting very passionate desire for something or someone now we don't think that's quite so bad as anger because it promises at least it has that quality of promise promises satisfaction that it then does not keep its promise we lay at the feet of that which we have desired that that wasn't quite the right thing or the right person that nothing can ever in the worldly existence be totally satisfactory that we don't see either so when we start watching our emotions very carefully labeling them in everyday life which slows down our reaction automatically because we've got to give time for labeling and then having labeled it seeing that some of them are totally useless they're only going to get us into hot water and as we see that we're learning the substitution that will change our life dramatically it will change our inner life so dramatically that after some time i'm not going to give exact time elements here we won't recognize ourselves we'll still have the inclination to react the way we did but we won't do it anymore because mindfulness steps in as a break Now this is the way to look at mindfulness. If you drive a car without brakes, it's a disaster, isn't it? And it's potential suicide. It's very dangerous. It's not only dangerous for the driver, it's dangerous for all the other cars that one meets because they might be affected. It's the same if we live without this attention to our own emotions. It's dangerous. not only dangerous to ourselves to everybody who comes into contact with us now that doesn't mean suppressing emotions that should never be misunderstood like that the suppression of emotion is just as harmful as the expression of the non-beneficial emotion it's neither suppression nor expression its substitution of that which is not beneficial to that which is beneficial now we have to be able to distinguish between that which is beneficial and that which is not beneficial and we don't have to make up our own mind we don't have to rummage around in some philosophy books trying to figure out what's beneficial emotion what isn't the buddha made it quite clear 
He said there are only four kinds of emotions which are beneficial, which are useful in retaining, in developing and cultivating, and all the others are best let go of. Now these four are called in Pali the four Brahma Viharas, which means, literally translated, the abode of the gods. It's a literal translation, which we don't really need to use. But what they actually contain are the kind of emotion which make our hearts and minds peaceful and joyful so that we can actually say we feel at ease even living in a world which is very uneasy and gets more so by the minute. If those are the emotions that we base our life on, life becomes smooth. It does not mean that we can no longer discriminate between that which is right and that which is wrong. If we were to come to that point, we wouldn't know how to act any longer. But what it amounts to is that we hate the crime, but we don't hate the criminal. It's as simple as that. Now these four emotions in Pali, metta karuna mudita upekka, in English, not as easy as it might seem to translate, although they have been translated many, many times, I'm often not satisfied with the translation. The first one is translated as loving-kindness. I like to just call it love, because the word loving-kindness with a hyphen in the middle doesn't seem to really hit the spot. So I'm going to call it love and explain it at length and in detail. Second one, compassion, that's easy. Third one, sympathetic joy or joy with others. And the fourth one is the crowning glory of all emotions, equanimity, even-mindedness. Now all of them have far enemies and near enemies. Now the far enemies are very easy to understand and to see, everybody knows them. The far enemy of love is hate. The far enemy of compassion is cruelty. The far enemy of joy with others is envy. And the far enemy of even-mindedness is agitation and restlessness. We all know that. And we've all been beset by them. No human being can ever be without these until we have practiced long enough and with enough insight so that the far enemies at least disappear. But they also have near enemies. Now they are harder to get rid of. They are called near enemies not because they are difficult to get rid of but because they have the appearance as if they were the same thing. That's why they are called near enemies. They appear to be just that, what we're striving for, and yet they accomplish the opposite. Now the near enemy 
of love is affection coupled with attachment. Now obviously that appears to be love. We'll talk about it in a moment. The near enemy of compassion is pity. Appears to be very similar. The near enemy of joy with others is trying to translate it in a better way the make-believe the appearance of being joyful not the truthfulness of it with other people and equanimity the near enemy of indifference now all of these have the appearance as if they were the real thing and we have all used them and not only did we use them and probably made a good show of it to others, but most likely we convinced ourselves. And that's far more dangerous than convincing others. Convincing others is nothing. It's child's game. Children do it all the time, convincing their parents of something else. But convincing oneself that one is doing the real thing that's dangerous because then one doesn't practice and therefore mindfulness which is bare attention mindfulness which is the attention without judgment which is sometimes called knowing only that is the first and foremost mental factor which is needed in order to know ourselves there's nothing we can do unless we know ourselves the Buddha said the whole of the universe lies in this fathom long body and mind one fathom long used to be a measurement for a body I don't know maybe five foot eight or whatever it may be but one fathom was the way they measured it so the whole of the universe lies in this body and mind if we don't know this body and mind we can't know the world not even the world around us not even the people that we deal with because the people that we deal with who are important to us obviously because our life depends on our relationships with other people good or bad or indifferent are exactly the same as we are and the universe is too so the macrocosm has to be recognized in this microcosm and this is what we can do when we use mindfulness now mindfulness as I said and will say again most likely has to be practiced in daily life but it has to be learned unfortunately it doesn't come natural to us if it did everything would be so much easier we would by now already know what we consist of so in order to learn it we have to practice meditation mindfulness is the heart of Buddhist meditation it's the title of a very good book if you see it somewhere buy it it's an excellent book it uh, explains mindfulness in far greater detail than what I'm be able to do here and it is a book which is geared towards practice 
mindfulness is not only the heart of Buddhist meditation it is actually the heart of Buddhist practice because without that introspection inner awareness paying attention to oneself totally objectively without blaming anyone without blaming the outer conditions without blaming oneself without blaming whatever that makes it possible to change so we have to learn mindfulness there's no reason why we shouldn't and why we couldn't all skills are learnable and this is a skill meditation is a skill a learnable skill anyone who's really committed to learn it will learn it guaranteed just a matter of time but one has to be totally committed to it it can't be a hobby or a um, sometimes action it has to be a commitment to actually learn it mindfulness is the same thing and because mindfulness as you noticed yesterday does let the world drop away and therefore creates peacefulness it may be easier to learn than real concentration and there may be more inducement to have it to learn it to practice it whatever skill we'd like to have we have to cultivate it we even all of us had to learn to walk nobody is born with that skill we learn it we have to learn to speak we have to learn every skill that we use in daily living but those basic skills with which we can make a living and live as ordinary people also have to be reinforced with more spiritual skills so that we can actually grow and expand mindfulness is that skill now before I will go into explaining those four emotions which are the ones that the Buddha said we need to cultivate develop and use as our only emotions I would like us to do our meditation first and I'll tell you about those emotions later now with the meditation I would like to come to the the second base of mindfulness attending to the sensations now there are two things that we can do when we watch the breath in order to become aware of sensation the first thing is when we first sit down to meditate become aware of the touch contact that the body has at this time first of all there is the seat which touches the pillow then you will find the touch contact of the legs on the carpet you will find the touch contact of the hands on the knees you will probably find the touch contact of the arms against the body you can go further then and become aware of the touch contact of the clothes on the body and from that you can become aware of as many of the physical sensations 
that arise in your awareness. You can go through the body for a few moments and just look at the sensations that you are aware of. Uh, for instance would be the eyelids which are closed and are touching upon the eyes, the lips which are closed and touched upon each other. These are just examples. You can just become aware of whatever sensations there are starting with the touch sensation of the sitting. Now after having gone through that, and I'll explain the whole process first before we start the meditation so that I don't have to interrupt you in meditation with my talking. And then use the breath as the creator of the sensation. In other words, watching the breath as it goes in and out and becoming aware initially of the sensation at the nostrils which is created by the wind of the breath and then if you can stay on that in and out breath with the sensation that's fine if that isn't enough if the mind just goes all over the place again use more of the sensations which was the fourth crutch which I explained yesterday we're all going to use that now Watch the sensations as the breath goes in. Watch it wherever you become aware of it. It can be in the throat, it can be in the back of the neck, it can be in the lungs, it can be further down, it can be a feeling of expansion and then contraction. Whatever you can become aware of as a sensation, use it in and out. And as you become distracted, label again. Label the thought. If the thought that comes is very fleeting, like a cloud in the back of the mind, nothing substantial, don't label, hmm? don't. <laughs> just let it go, because it just fly, flies away like a cloud in the wind. Huh? So don't label it. But if it's a substantial thing that makes you run after it, become involved in it, label it. That is actually one of the foundations of mindfulness also. I'll come to that. So first the sensations of the body as we sit and then the sensations of the breath. Now is this quite, quite clear to everybody? Are there any questions? Anything? If it's long enough to stick around, call it a dream. If it's really sticking. Those that need no labeling are the ones that are like bits and pieces of a cloud going in the back. I mean, they're not really going in the back, but it feels as if they are going in the back of the mind and just sort of going by while you're still watching the breath. That needs a little more determination. That's all it needs. That's Upachara Samadhi that's um, neighborhood concentration and when you have that just a tiny little more determination let me be with the breath but if it's long enough to stick around the dreamlike quality call it dream because it gets you out of the dream anything else 
Yes, um, call it future, past, hopes, planning, worry, remembering, disliking, boredom, uh, nonsense. The first one that comes to mind. Don't try to find the right one. The very first one. Okay? Anything else? <laughs> the first one you used is thinking. But thinking is not really a label. Oh. Thinking is an activity. That's not a label. Oh, so that's not that's nowhere because thinking we all know. We've th we've been doing that ever since we can remember. We've been thinking but we haven't been labeling. We haven't been saying, this is beneficial, this is harmful. We haven't been saying that. So this is the new thing we learn. But not if it's only passing in the back, okay? We'll get up and stand up a moment, stretch our legs before we start, okay? Strong physical sensations that we have when we sit and then go to the more subtle ones such as the touch of the clothes and the touch of the lips and the eyelids and anything else that is a physical <coughs> sensation just note it and go to another one and after having done that to the breath with the sensation of the breath the touch sensation. Out in the grassy area again for the walking meditation. And as we do the walking meditation this time, besides watching the movement as we did yesterday, we can also become aware of the different sensations due to the different movements. When one lifts the back of the foot up, there's a sort of feeling of pressure on the front of the foot, which wasn't there before. There's more pressure. And as, as you lift that one up, there's a feeling of becoming a little lighter in the foot, a little more lightness. Then, as you lift it, sort of a feeling of being almost floating with that foot is floating then pushing forward falling down touching and complete touching little bit touching all touching now all all six movements have six different sensations whether you can differentiate between each one of them very exactly or not it doesn't matter try to do it as best you can because the more we differentiate the more we have already established mindfulness. So we'll do that, and then when I ring the bell out there, will be time for a break, and then we'll come back here at four o'clock after the break. Is it quite clear what to do with the walking meditation?
anybody not know about six steps? Yes, you don't know. Uh, I'll show it to you. Anybody else doesn't know? Okay. You come also with that. I'll show you. You weren't here yesterday. You were here. So you did the walking meditation. Okay. Just all those that don't that don't know, you come over here and I'll explain it before we go. All right? The rest all know what to do. Six-point movement and sensation. That what we learn in meditation has to have an application in our daily life. Otherwise, we are dividing ourselves into two people. Those that live ordinary everyday life and then a meditator in the morning or in the evening or when a teacher comes around or when we happen to remember. And that doesn't work. It doesn't do any good either to the meditator nor does it do any good to the ordinary person because nothing has any support then. So whatever we do in meditation has to help daily living and whatever we do in daily living has to help the meditation. We have to integrate. And by integrating the two, eventually the purification comes to the point where it's actually meaningful, where it has that kind of repercussion that makes it possible to see a different reality. So now the mindfulness that we have practiced and talked about. The first one we've already discussed, mindfulness of the body, how we use it in daily living. Now we have the mindfulness of feeling. Now we have now practiced it twice in the meditation. Obviously that's not enough. We have to keep on practicing. One only can become skillful if one practices continuously over and over again until such a time that the skill becomes a habit. And that habit then is no longer an effort, but it's automatic. And this is what has happened to all the skills we have learned to the point where they have become a habit. Maybe you can remember when you were small and your mother told you that you need to clean your teeth every morning and every evening. And you might even remember that you didn't want to do it. Or maybe you taught your own children and they didn't want to do it. They said, oh, what a bother and uh, what for. And I'll do it tomorrow. That's a very popular one. And uh, I've already done it, which means yesterday, and that type of thing. But mother insists and the teeth get cleaned and eventually it becomes a habit. And that habit is still with us. And it doesn't take any great effort and doesn't take anybody to tell us. We know exactly why we have to clean our teeth and we do it automatically. Everything that we have learned to the point where we are really proficient at it is easy. And here we have a chance to learn a skill which can actually transform our lives. They can, this skill of mindfulness can transform our whole attitude, our whole outlook, and it can become habitual. But in the beginning, we have to keep telling ourselves 
So we have to be our own mother and our own child. The child that says, I'll do it tomorrow, and the mother that says, no, it's really important that you do it now. It's very important. It's good for your health. It's good for you. I wouldn't insist if it wasn't good for you. That's a mother. And the child's constantly saying, oh, what a bother. And yet, eventually, becoming habitually imbued with the fact that it's necessary to be mindful, to pay attention, to know. Now, with that practice in meditation, where we become aware of the sensation, at other times we may be even becoming aware of emotion, we have an entry into our awareness in daily living of the emotions that come up. Naturally, sensations also also come up. And quite frequently, the sensations are very closely connected with the emotion. For instance, if you feel tension, then there may be a pain in the shoulders or in the neck, or fear that might be in the stomach. The stomach might actually grip or have a um, contract because there's fear. It can be in the throat. There may be a headache induced from um, the uh, achievement syndrome. These are connections which are possible. There are many, many others. So if we learn to be aware of sensation, we learn at the same time to be aware of emotion. Whether we can put the two together or not doesn't matter at all. It doesn't have to be that my left shoulder hurts because I was tense. It doesn't matter at all. But I can, because I am aware that my left shoulder hurts, I can also be aware of a tension or a fear or an anger. The awareness is the recognition. Without that recognition, there's no possibility of change. But with that recognition, and I'll repeat the formula, recognition, no blame, change. There's nobody and nothing to blame. Nothing. Things are the way they are. We can change. Why not? It's embedded in our language. I've changed my mind. We can change our mind any time. Only we have to make sure we're doing it now in the right direction, that's all. There's nobody else to blame for it either. Because all that's happening outside of us are the triggers. And one of the very important formulas to remember to write in huge letters and hang over one's bed if there's room there or wherever is don't blame the trigger. This is a most popular pastime that goes on everywhere in the family, on the job, in politics, in the whole international structure. We blame the trigger. And we don't have to go outside of ourselves, we can see it in our daily happening. Somebody says the wrong thing, somebody looks at us not the way we'd like them to do it, somebody doesn't respond the way we'd like them to do it, and immediately there is anger, 
and we justify it because the other person didn't do the right thing there is no such thing as justifiable anger there just is anger that's all so by practicing mindfulness we become aware of that and we also become aware of the fact that anger is an emotion which we could do well without it's unpleasant to say the least Buddha compared anger to picking up hot coals with one's bare hands and trying to throw them at somebody who gets burned first obviously the one who's picking up the coals the other person might even be smart enough to duck but we got burned already he compared anger with the bilious disease the bile coming up doesn't feel good and because it doesn't feel good we have actually two ideas about it first of all the one I've already mentioned that it's somebody else's fault and the second one is which is far more useful we'd like to get rid of it we'd like to be in a situation where it doesn't arise now again we have mistaken thoughts about that namely the idea that we have to get away from everything that could arouse anger in us particularly other people so that we'd never get angry again said like this I'm sure everybody can hear the absurdity of that there's no such situation to be found anywhere in the world it's impossible not to have something that will arouse anger the triggers in the world for that very plain everywhere blocked up traffic terrible weather barking dogs loud radios strike of the um, people who are supposed to pick up the, the rubbish everything can arouse anger we don't have to go anywhere to find it we can't move away and think that that will solve the problem it's the same it's identical to and I hope you can see the connection to moving when the knee hurts it's exactly the same we want to get away from our discomfort so we move but obviously anyone who's ever sat in meditation more than 20 minutes knows that the discomfort arises again and so we've got to move again and the movement never does solve the problem we try so if we have seen that the outer triggers are not really the cause for the anger and they're trying to move away from all the possibilities where they could touch us it's also not possible then we're ready to practice but first we have to see those two quite clearly now the first one that isn't the outer trigger I'd like to explain with a simile 
Maybe you've seen the toy that children have. It's called a jack-in-the-box. It's a little cardboard or wooden box and inside is a spring and on that spring sits a little doll and it has a lid on the little box. And when the child touches the lid of the box, just lightly, the little doll jumps out. Now somebody comes along and pulls the little doll out of the box and throws it away. Now the child can come with a hammer and hit that lid. Nothing jumps out. That's what happens here. Some people just need to be touched very lightly. In fact, they haven't even been touched yet. They are thinking they might be touched and it already jumps out. Others, you might have to touch a little more strongly and it jumps out. The anger, the resistance. It only stops jumping out when it's been removed. That's the only way it can stop jumping out. There's no way we'll remove these triggers. The world's full of them. Now when we've seen that, that it isn't out there, and that running away or moving away from that which touches upon us also doesn't help because then there'll be something else. If it isn't this thing, it's the next thing. Then we can use the Buddhist guidelines how to practice so that our heart no longer contains so much anger that it jumps out so easily. Every ordinary person's heart contains anger. We get born with six roots, three wholesome, three unwholesome. The unwholesome ones are greed, hate and delusion. And delusion is the underlying cause for greed and hate. Hate is anger. Huh? And we have, we have the opposite. We have generosity, we have love and we have wisdom. But because we have all six, the practice of the spiritual path means to develop the three wholesome ones and to try and minimize the three unwholesome ones. So once we have seen that we have them, then we can go ahead and start the practice of developing the one and minimizing the other. The meditation helps greatly, but we can't rely on just the meditation. I will mention briefly the one thing of the meditation that is the antidote for anger. But because that is only available to an experienced meditator, I won't elaborate on it so much or not at all. <coughs> when one has become concentrated enough to stay on the breath for some time, some time is arbitrary, whatever is necessary, the breath becomes very fine and it can become so fine that we can't find it. And the first and most natural reaction to that is 
taking a deep breath or even becoming worried about where's my breath but in actual fact it's a totally different story altogether and that's why I said yesterday and will repeat now that in the beginning of meditation practice one has to have a teacher to be told what to do later on it doesn't matter one can figure out oneself the breath is the key and we have to hold the key in our hand long enough and steady enough to fit it into the keyhole but once it's in the keyhole we unlock the door and having done that we don't go back fiddling with the key we enter into the house and that's when we no longer need the key we don't need the breath anymore we can actually now meditate it's a mansion with a chamber and when the breath has been attended to without interruption for a certain length of time it doesn't have to be very long and becomes so fine that it's hard to find that means we have found the keyhole and all we have to do is let go of the breath at that time let go of this key enter into this mansion which has a chamber into its entry hall and there attend to the feelings which have arisen the sensations which have arisen which at that time are extremely pleasant now those pleasant sensations in Pali they're called piti p-i-t-i not the English piti piti are translated as delight and interest when we get that far in our meditation and it doesn't take all that much to get there interest arises and one continues one continues to meditate even that is also maybe not a hundred percent so but at least 95 percent of the people will continue and will have a spiritual path based on meditation calm and insight which will give them an opening into a different attitude and viewpoint in life now having these delightful experience that this delightful experience is obvious that during that time there's no way one can become angry impossible when one feels delightful one cannot be angry but it has far greater repercussions having had this kind of experience and mind you I must insert we do not meditate in order to get delightful sensations this is only one step on the way it is the first step after being able to let go of the method now having had this experience obviously the mind knows that it can return to that any time it wishes it wants to sit down and meditate and therefore much of the annoyances and irritations that everybody is subject to in daily life are no longer hurting are no longer giving one any kind of difficulty because they do not touch because the mind knows it can return to its pleasant state it has experienced the fact that it can be very happy independent of outer conditions 
this makes such a difference in one's whole inner feeling that it is a great pity that not more people in the world come to that point it's not difficult it's a skill like any other but not a difficult one at least the least it will do it will counteract not completely of course but to a large degree the anger the petty anger the petty ideas of um, dislike and rejection which arise in people so easily and make their own lives miserable and on, a, on top of that they make other people's lives also miserable because if somebody is angry inside obviously that is going to be heard and seen in that person so here we have an automatic antidote however it's not enough and also it doesn't arise if we haven't got our meditation that far advanced so we need other methods and here we come to those four emotions the first one that I mentioned earlier love or loving kindness metta in Pali the first one which is the kind of emotion that we think of as being dependent upon a certain person that there's somebody there who's lovable that we can love because somebody loves us or we would love if somebody were to love us we'd be quite willing to love if somebody would be willing to or because the other person is so wonderful or because the other person happens to belong to our family or because there is a my in front or mine and therefore we are able to do something about this heart opening this is the near enemy of love the one that is called attachment affection based on attachment the Buddhist way and guideline is that we can actually cultivate our heart quality to the point where it contains love which doesn't have anything to do with the fact whether there's somebody there that's lovable now if we're waiting for somebody who's lovable we might wait all our lives for somebody and in the end we'll still find some fault nobody who's not fully enlightened is fully lovable because each person contains the three roots of unwholesomeness also including ourselves so why should we be able where we are not totally lovable to find somebody who's totally lovable and this is the whole misery of the relationships at first the person seems to be absolutely perfect and then later we find out I made a mistake isn't perfect now what no longer lovable so and the other mistake we make is also that we are looking for somebody to love us 
but it's very nice to be loved by somebody but the only thing it does for us is it support system for our own ego somebody thinks we're lovable how nice and then when that person changes his or her mind and no longer thinks we're lovable then our world which we have built around this dream collapses and it's a tragedy or we have to quickly find somebody else who thinks we're lovable and none of that is satisfactory and none of that is love all of that has only to do with a support system for this person whom we call me whom we have great doubts about whether he or she is really lovable it doesn't work and we have the statistics to prove it we may have our own life to prove it that's the statistics for sure but what does work is an education of our own heart that works now all our schools colleges universities starting from kindergarten on up are geared towards the education of the mind we can learn 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 imbibe more and more knowledge and we can actually foster an intelligent mind by logical thinking and logical conclusions but there are no schools colleges or universities to educate the heart we have to do that ourselves and if we don't make this balance in ourselves where the educated mind is balanced by an educated heart we'll always be looking for something to support us to make us a whole person when both are developed equally then we have an inner security the education of the heart means that we're actually recognizing the fact that dislike has no place in our lives it's only a negativity the dislike which we extend towards things and people particularly towards people our greatest difficulty is usually with other people we're not so worried about cats dogs trees automobiles and the rest of it it's usually people that's natural because after all it's our own species so we have judgments and ideas about that but there are many other things we can remember about other people which will make it so much easier to live with them because all of us have to live together we are living on a very small planet and even though australia is in the lucky position to be the furthest away from it all it still is only 10 hours to be right smack in the middle of it all or even 9 hours so we are not removed we are all together and not only that on this small planet how big are our houses that we live in how big are the offices that we work in the shops that we may be in that we go shopping in everywhere we go there are other people we have to live together how much easier it is to live together if we have a loving heart now this loving heart has to be a development in oneself totally independent 
of the qualities of another person. We are strictly concerned with the qualities of ourselves. We are not concerned with the qualities of someone else. They have to look after their own qualities. They have to develop themselves. If we look after our own quality, heart quality, and thereby develop this kind of lovingness which is not discriminatory but just giving then our peacefulness and our harmony is assured if we're constantly judging whether somebody is worth it or whether somebody is going to get back to us we are remaining in that duality of the marketplace where we buy and sell where we want to get for what we give if we really want to have a life which is smooth and flows and does not strictly rely only on materiality, on give and take, but is more concerned with spirituality, then we need to make up our minds that we can give love. It's no, it doesn't matter whether we're getting it. And you know what happens when we give it? It means we've got it. We can only give what we've got. The more love we give out, the more we've got. If somebody else is loving us, that's their wealth. They've got it. Only when we are doing the loving do we have it. Now this is such an elementary and easy foundation to see and yet most of the world never considers that it's probably too simple the simplicity of the teaching of the Buddha is its greatest attraction now simplicity does not yet mean that it's easy when you start trying and I hope you will it's your homework for tomorrow to love whoever comes your way doesn't matter what it is who it is where it is the postman the uh, tram conductor whoever comes your way or maybe particularly a person you know and don't like very much then you'll see it's very simple yes but it's not easy because inside of ourselves there's a sort of rejection and resistance of doing that especially when we see a person whom we don't like and we have every reason in the world not to like that person why do we reject and resist? why do we have that feeling? don't we know logically already that it would be much better if we didn't? that we would, we would feel much better the whole thing boils down to our ego consciousness we've all got it it's only completely lost when we're totally enlightened and that might take a little while this ego consciousness is always concerned with the safety and security of this me the ego the one that says this is me and I have to have safety and security and because it's concerned with that it rejects 
everything out of hand that has the slightest <coughs> inkling of not supporting the ego. This is the reason why it's so difficult to become concentrated. I mean, what could be easier than watching the breath? I mean, the simplicity of the statement is almost um, too simple. Just sit down and watch your breath. And who can do it? Nobody. To just sit down and watch one's breath. Why can nobody do it? Because the ego, at the time of concentration, has no support system. We can only be aware of ourselves as a certain person when we are thinking. Therefore, Descartes, I think, therefore I am. That's our Western way of thinking. And actually, it's the other way around. I am, therefore I think. But this is a difficulty that we encounter in the concentration process. Every time the mind might just touch upon concentration without thinking, it quickly jumps away from it and starts thinking again because it's the only way we can have the ego support. Now the same happens with our emotions. Instead of just loving, we judge, we discriminate because that's the only way we can support the insecurity that our ego has because it is an illusion and therefore very insecure. It doesn't have any real foundation to base itself on, so it needs a support system all the time. And this support system it gets through all the diversification of our thinking and actions and through our thought processes and through our discriminatory way of looking at other people. So if we see the difficulty and if we recognize it, and please don't take my word for it, try it out for yourself. See whether you find it difficult to love the postman or to love the neighbor who turns the radio on too loud or to love the boss who, who comes in the morning and is grumpy. Then look at it and see what makes it difficult. Why is it difficult? And don't be contented with the answer because he or she is so awful. That's not good enough. Then ask again, why is he or she awful? Well, it doesn't talk nice. Why do I object to that? Well, it's eventually you will come down to the bottom line. No ego support. That's the bottom line. And then you know for yourself. In the Buddha's teaching, we have to try it all out for ourselves. The only thing the Buddha does is give the guidelines. This is the way it goes. But it has to be done by oneself. So the first of those four, Brahma Viharas, first of the four, divine abidings, love is a totally different proposition from what we think love is. When we use it in the way that we have heard and seen it on the films and in the books, it is always beset with fear because it is a hanging on and holding on 
And underneath it all, we do know that everything is impermanent. And therefore, there is fear of losing. The fear of losing that particular person, the fear of losing that particular love. Now, fear is connected to hate. We don't fear what we love, we fear what we hate. We don't hate that person, we hate the, all the idea, the embellishments that go with it. So we never experience pure love, what it means to actually love, until we educate our heart to loving without cause or reason, the only reason being that we want to purify our own heart. The meditation will help greatly, but in daily life we have to also work on that. And we have to or can become aware of the fact that each negative thought, just a thought about someone else, is already a lack of love. Now, if we become aware of that, and then actually become aware of each negative thought, then we will know how lacking in love most people's lives are. Everybody has negative thoughts about other people. But in reality, it's totally unnecessary. Let other people be. Let them live their lives. It doesn't matter. The only one that we can educate are we ourselves. There's nobody else that we can educate. So these negative thoughts that arise will, of course, manifest in speech and action. Very often, we will try to manipulate our speech. It's a very common pastime. So that it sounds as if it were positive. Nobody believes it. We hear behind the words. I talked to a woman once here in Australia, in New South Wales, who was teaching communication workshops. And they were very well attended. It's rather an um, indictment of our own lack of ability to communicate. And she said that had been statistically proven that the spoken word is only 7% of our communication. The other 93% are body language, facial expression, and tone of voice. So if we have a negative thought about the person, we can say what we like. The person is going to hear the negativity. And the other way around too. So it's our thought processes which have to be watched very carefully and we have already learned a little bit of that through the labeling and then becoming aware of the emotion which is arising either before the thought or after the thought because the emotion may be triggered by the thought but it may also be triggered by something else, maybe triggered by another sense contact, by what we see or hear or taste, touch or smell. can be triggered by any one of those. 
or by the thought. For this attention will then help us to realize how much negativity there is. And then we need another understanding that the negative thought process in our own mind attacks our own mind. It's like rust, which if we don't remove it, it will make quite a big hole in it. It's like ruts which go into the mind. Eventually, if we've done it often enough and long enough, we can't help it anymore. It comes by habit. So we need to be careful with that. And every time we see that negativity arising, substitute. There's nothing more important than substitution. Something entirely different. And what do we substitute? Let's say it's about negative thought about another person. He or she is unpleasant. He or she doesn't know what they're talking about. He or she are just not likable, whatever it may be, any kind of reason. It doesn't really matter. We can always dream up another reason. If one isn't good enough, we'll think of another one. But we realize that this only hurts ourselves, that nobody else is being hurt by that. Only we are. Our own mind processes are going in that negative direction. So then, the substitution. If we have seen in ourselves that life is not as it's made out to be a bed of roses, that there are difficulties, that life is difficult, that it's not easy to be a human being, that there is pain and grief, that there's pain in body, that there's mental and emotional pain, we can assume without a shadow of a doubt that that other person has the same. So even if we can't love the other person right off, we can have compassion. Compassion for ourselves, for the difficulties we encounter, and compassion for the other person. And that will connect us to the other person on a level of understanding, on a level of being together, because compassion, com is the syllable for together, to be with, and with feeling, and it will completely eliminate the negative thought. So it's much easier to substitute with compassion than it is to substitute with actual love. But from compassion, love will arise because we can see that the difficulties that we encounter in this life are the same that everybody else encounters. Mostly, most of them are emotional. And with that emotional difficulty, we can see that the other person has the same difficulty in loving that we have. So, we can overcome our own difficulties. This substitution process is our daily work. Homework tomorrow. If you notice a negative emotion or a negative thought, substitute and see how nice it feels. Whom are you going to make happy? Just yourself. And if you learn to make yourself happy and not rely on other people to do so, then everything becomes much easier. Other people are very nice sometimes, 
but they've also got their own ego to worry about and therefore we learn to cultivate this quality within ourselves to the point where it becomes a habit and when that is developed sufficiently and the negativities may not be completely eliminated but at least they only have a very short lifespan no more rust and no more dirt is added to our mind the purification process takes place and the more purification there is the easier it is to see the truth as long as our emotions are very strong we really can't see clearly the purification of emotion brings clarification of thought when we're very angry we can't really think about anything except anger and when we're very passionately desiring something or someone we really can't think of anything other than that it's like being under this ocean wave where we only see the water we have to wait till it calms down again and then we can look into depth 